name is Jared Anderson. This is a podcast about consciousness and transformation, where we explore the nature of consciousness and how we as humans transform. I speak with teachers, coaches, mystics, authors, and others in the transformational space. These conversations are designed to support your own growth and evolution. Welcome. everybody i'm so excited today <laughs> got one of my old favorite people this is sean ellison wave sean what on guys so <clears throat> i met sean in grad school we were uh in the consciousness and transformative studies master's degree at john f kennedy university and Sean is unmistakable. When he walks into a room, you're like, okay. And then he talks and you're like, wait, who's this person? <laughs> and uh, he's a lot of things. But really at the essence of who he is, is um, I don't know how else to say it more than he's one of the easiest things to spot as, a, as an expression of the divine. And when he speaks, you can hear the power and profundity of his words. Um, he has a really amazing story. He's, uh, if you read the bio that I just posted, I'll actually read it because it's so good here. So, um, Sean Ellison is a Christian mystic certified integral coach, a narrative Enneagram practitioner and a registered nurse. He experienced multiple spiritual awakenings that have led to transformative states of mystical consciousness. By the age of 22, Sean experienced the abiding realization of union with God, described by St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. The spiritual realization known as theosis or the unitive state in the Christian mystical tradition. In 2016, Sean later experienced the falling away of the subject-object union with God and entered what he calls cosmic unity consciousness, Christ consciousness, or pure witnessing subjectivity. His spiritual journey since has been a gradual movement toward complete loss of self or non-dual suchness beyond all subjectivity. His, he credits these spiritual transformations to the creative actions of divine grace. Lastly, Sean works with, a, with spiritual speak, seekers one-on-one -on -one to help them develop their inner dispositions that are conducive to spiritual awakening. You know, that old chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for reading that. <laughs> it's true. So we're going to get into it. And Sean's amazing. And we've got so much to get into because we share so much in common. We share a love of Ken Wilber. We share a love of the Enneagram. We share a love of like these higher states of consciousness. I relate to them more from people like Sri Aurobindo or maybe Gene Gepser. And I don't have nearly as much as the Christian mystical tradition. So I'm going to be really excited to, to learn more from you in this conversation about what that all is. Um, and, uh, so let's just jump in. So besides all that setup that I just had, Sean, why don't you say hello and tell us a little bit about who you are and what brings you today? Yeah, of course, Jared. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Yeah. I mean, my, the bio says a lot of it. Um, I'm a pretty ordinary guy. Like you said, you know, I'm, I'm a nurse as well. That's a huge part of my journey is really integrating these higher states with the mundane everyday world particularly around suffering. Um, as a nurse, I'm working on oncology mostly with kids and sort of being able to kind of bring this awareness and consciousness and groundedness to the bedside has been a powerful way of sort of 
integrating that higher above the head awareness down to the earth. And so for me, this journey is really about how do you embody the awakening and embodying it in a very full way and not just having it biased toward the higher states and kind of neglecting the world. And so really bringing heaven and earth together has been my journey and sort of seeing how that changes because these states are not stagnant. And so as you're living them, they continue to change, they get deeper and deeper and deeper and how you relate to yourself and how you relate to the world and relationships and other people in your life also changes. So you're constantly changing and it's hard. It's kind of you playing catch up with yourself all the time because you wake up the next morning and there's a shift and the next day is a shift. And then a year later is a shift. So you're always just trying to play catch up with yourself. Um, but the main thing I want to just emphasize is that it's really about grace for me as a Christian mystic. I mean, um, there is a part where you have to surrender and consent and you sort of are open and you're trying to let this grace come in. But for me, all the breakthroughs, man, I mean, they've all been grace, just this divine intervention that comes out of the blue. Like, it's not like it's, you can, you know, where it comes from. It's like, you're living your life, you're open, you are seeking, and you really are desirous about, you know, being one with God and seeking ultimate truth. And then this grace just comes. And at some point in time, you know, I got to a, a point where it was like an advocate. It was like, I need grace. Like without grace, there is no journey. There is no movement. There's just me being stuck in the mud and not going anywhere. And so there is this sense of a gradual surrendering into grace and allowing grace to sort of kind of carry you to the next state that's in front of you. So overall, it's been a really amazing journey, ups and downs, depressions, um, you know, awakenings, ecstasies, um, emptiness. I mean, all the polarities and dualities you can think of. Um, so it was very humbling, to say the least. Uh, oh, so I'm just so eager to get into all of it. And I know we, you know, before we were speaking a little bit about before the, this started, a little bit about um, getting into the dark night of the soul. Before we go there, can you tell people more about your initial awakening experience? I believe it, you said it was age 22. Yeah, so that one came much later. There are a couple other ones that kind of led to that one. So do you want to start with the more advanced ones or however some of the early feel, ones? However you think is best. Why don't I, I trust, you know, whatever you kind of feel is coming through is great with me. Yeah, sure. I'll keep it more abbreviated. Um, so I was 15 um, when my journey started officially. You know, prior to that, I was sort of just a Christian kid. I grew up in a Protestant household in Philadelphia. Um, great parents, a very devout Christian household. Um, and yet I had this desire to taste truth. You know, I was always in Bible studies and doing all the things, fundamentalist things. I was never satisfied. I was like, I need to taste this. Like, I can't just believe it blindly. It wasn't good enough for me. So when I was 15, I had this sense that I had to get baptized, like fully submerged, like baptism. And so I told my dad, like, hey, dad, I got to get baptized. I don't know why it has to happen like soon. Right. So I go to this retreat um, up in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania and I get baptized. In that experience, I come up from the water and there is this profound sense of unity where the egoic veil dropped away. And in that moment, there was no sense of having a self or having a sense of individuated consciousness. There was just a, a very delicate bliss and a joy and a peace and a profound acceptance of life as it was. And when that veil dropped, 
I was mesmerized because this is the first time that I had any experience like that before. And as I left the pool where I was baptized, the veil kind of came back up again. And I was back in my normal egoic body mind. And I was like thinking to myself, like, what was that? Right. Because I had no context for it. I'm just a Protestant kid. So I don't know anything about anything. I don't know mysticism, contemplation, you know, states of consciousness, Ken Wilber, none of it. And so I'm confused. You know, I go home thinking to myself, like, that was a glimpse into something that seems possible to me. But how do I get it back? Because it came and went. And so I spent the next two years in constant prayer. And so I would go into a room in my house, close the door, and just pray. And my prayer was at the time, you know, God, you know, help me, you know, open up to this again, right? Help me to discover your true nature, right? So prayers that were more about that direct sort of connection versus like asking God for things. I didn't want things, you know, I was like, I was 16. And, you know, 16 year olds want to date and, you know, go out. And I was in the room praying for hours. I'll go to school, yeah. come yeah. home. And I would, you know, I'll go into a room. And I'm in there for four or five hours praying and not knowing what for or what will happen out of it. And so when I was about 16 and a half, I had this strange experience where I go into prayer and all of a sudden I would just go into silence. And in the silence, there was no thought. There was no feeling or emotion or any sense of being anywhere. There was just silence. And it terrified me because I'm like, silence, this is not biblical. I'm like, where's, where's the silence, right? I was trying to go through the Bible, trying to find where, where's silence. And it's just mentioned in different places, but not in much detail. And so I'm terrified. Now, what is this silent stuff that I'm experiencing now? But a part of me knew that it was coming from God in some strange way. And so I kept at it. I go into prayer, fall into silence. And then when I was 17, I had what I called my mystical conversion. And I can't really explain it in a short amount of time, but essentially what happened was there was this descent of grace from above the head that sort of came down over me and it penetrated my entire being. And it felt like a comet rushing down from above my head. It's rushing down and it hits the midsection of my body and it turns around and it starts expanding, going upward. And I'm sitting in, on the bed, looking at my hands and my feet. And I'm like, expanding. I feel that way. I'm not physically moving anywhere, but my, my conscience was expanding. And at some point, I got so large that I ceased to exist. And so there was no Sean. There was no sense of self, no time, no space, no sense of being in a body, being on the planet, having a personality or an I am or individuality. I and mean, all of it was wiped out. And when I came back to myself, there was this contraction. So I expanded into nothingness and then I reemerged. When I reemerged, it was like this big contraction. And when I contracted back to a singular point in the center of my chest, there was another expansion of this prolific energy that kind of radiated from the center of my chest. And at this point, there's just like pure euphoria, just like utter bliss just radiating everywhere. And I'm crying, I'm a mess, I'm crying, I'm convulsing, I'm shaking. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening. And I'm like, am I alive? Am I dead? I'm like, I'm so in between states and realms and I'm terrified, bro. And I'm, I'm sitting there shaking and I decide to stand up to just kind of get moving. And I try to stand up and I just collapse because my body felt so light. Yeah. And I started grabbing the chair and grabbing the table and trying to walk. And I was out of it. I mean, beside myself. And I was hyperventilating. I was really in a survival state. I have to survive this. I felt like I was dying. It was that intense. 
And I go downstairs to my room and my brother sees me. He's like, you know, what's wrong with you? Right. Cause I'm so hysterical. So he goes, they try to call 911. So the phone off the hook, he starts dialing. And I'm like waving him off. Like, you know, don't do anything. I couldn't speak. I was literally mute. There was, I couldn't open my mouth. I was trying to talk. Nothing came out. And so I go down to, to our room in the basement and I get in my bed and I'm just sitting there in the fetal position, crying, convulsing, um, weeping. And my brother stands, is sta- standing there waiting for me to speak. And after like 30 minutes, I just say, God, that's all I, I said, God, so I could say to him. And I thought to myself that night that I would never again experience that ever that sense of descent and that sense of God's presence that was so powerful. And I woke up the next morning with the same experience. I woke up and it was still there. And I was surprised to say the least, dumbfounded. Um, And that was what I call my mystical conversion experience. Um, And that was the the defining moment that literally shifted me forever. Like there was no going back to how I was prior to that. Looking back on it, I know now that it was a full-blown Kundalini awakening experience and yeah. then some, um, and it never went away. It opened up and it stayed there. Um, so that was an, my initial two awakenings that I had. And I left a lot of details out, but those were the two events that really kind of got me in this path. And then I went and purchased about 25, 30 books the next day, trying to figure out what happened to me. And that's when I found John the Cross and Teresa of Avila and the Christian mystics and mysticism. And I started reading this stuff. I'm not crazy, right? I'm not going crazy. And so that's where it started, um, was those two experiences. I was a teenager. I was super young. And my brain was so developing and growing. And so there's a lot happening inside. Super intense. Um, But that's how it started. So many places to go. Sean, You know, one thing that immediately comes to mind is you found these books as like references, like these people I can actually find solace in, I can find comfort, like I'm not alone. And it makes me think of transpersonal psychology. Had you gone to a therapist without any of these mystical kinds of books and said, this is what happens to me, and it would have been a traditional type of therapist, chances are they would have deemed you somewhat psychotic, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is this version of psychosis that we often deem a lot of people on this planet. And there's this this fourth wave of psychology, of transpersonal psychology that's come about. Um, I ask because I wonder two questions from that. A, what do you think of transpersonal psychology? And two, it feels like what's happening right now on this planet is that humanity is waking up. We're faced with this impasse, evolve or die. And I think that that's genuinely what we're facing. And we're needing a new consciousness to emerge. And what I'm noticing is on this planet, there are numerous amounts of people very similar to you that are having these remarkable uh, um, revelations that just start to pop up and these new states of consciousness start to pop up. And what I notice is, is that we have this old paradigm of interacting with that knowledge. So we have these versions of therapy, we have these versions of religion, we have these versions of even like spirituality that seem ill-equipped to actually take on the types of experiences with which you're describing. Um, I know, 
I, I say that because I had a somewhat similar, it wasn't as impactful or as large, but I've had plenty of glimpses into very similar types of experiences. And for me, I didn't have, I didn't find those books in my 20s. I had my profound mystical experience at 19, which was not an experience of abiding unity, as what you described, which I've later come to study. But it was these glimpses into the void, into like the, the, that profound stillness and silence, that state beyond ego. And I've witnessed it a few times, but it was so jarring to my ego that I spent the decade of my 20s in a real state of, it was very challenging to, to integrate that experience. So I, I meandered a little bit, but the question I'm curious about for you is really these structures to help us integrate this new version of consciousness, consciousness that does seem to be emerging right now. You want to riff on that a little bit? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, a few things that come to mind for me is that I knew for me, I had the benefit of a religious structure. And I know that a lot of people don't have that luxury, right? And so when I discovered this mystical element, right? And every religion has it, right? Sufism, Jewish Kabbalah, Hinduism, Buddhism, they all have these mystical sects or mystical schools, my mystery schools, right? And for me, I do think that we have to sort of redefine religion um, at this point, because I do think that traditionally the sense was that you have these experiences that are somehow trans religion, like they're somehow beyond religion. But in my opinion, all of our religions describe these states, you know, very clearly, like, you know, where to look, like every religion has a description of the ultimate state, right? The non-dual suchness, ultimate spirit, Godhead, whatever you want to call it and all the states that kind of are in between that we kind of awaken into and then unfold into the ultimate state. And I do think that a lot of us do have a lot of religious trauma associated with this stuff. And so we don't often see the connection between our awakening and sort of the underlying structures that are there supporting it unbeknown to ourselves. And so I do think that when we have these awakenings, we gotta look at the whole entire context, right? Of our whole life. Because I don't believe they happen accidentally. There, there's an intelligence to these experiences. It's not like they're just happening. I mean, you can do ayahuasca or something and have a, a huge experience, but if they're happening spontaneously without any type of, you know, experiencing through a plant medicine, there's an intelligence there, and there's also there with plant medicines too. But when it happens spontaneously, there's an intelligence there, and a part of the the struggle is how do you learn to trust that intelligence? Because the intelligence is not rational, right? It's not like you're you're following a rational intelligence. It's not it doesn't it doesn't speak to you. It doesn't is not a voice. It's not like you can audibly hear something. It comes and it's more like an inner knowing, uh, a type of faith that you have to sort of develop in the process itself. And I do think that our religions do have the capacity when they're expanded and sort of dilated out to really accommodate these experiences, we don't have to be, you know, zealots in religion to actually make the connections. But I think that having a model, someone in our religious history that can sort of bridge that gap for us is very important. Because to be, you know, on an island and have these experiences, you have no reference points, you have no religious figures to look to. For me, discovering 
St. John and Teresa, it was like, I have a archetype, I have a, I have a model that I can look to that can sort of kind of be a guide, right? And a part of this journey is needing guides. I mean, no one makes this journey on their own. And I, I do think that we have to be astute enough to understand that the intelligence of these experiences is always a connection to life prior to that. It's like you have your awakening experience and you have life before that. But there's a connection between those, the pre-life and the post-life of the experience, as opposed to it just being on its own island. So I do think that it takes some discernment to really step back from the experience and understand what is the larger context that is kind of holding and supporting the experience, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm imagining there's, well, I'll speak for myself. You know, one thing that's so hard to, to weed out is, as you mentioned, the religious trauma, because I very much agree that being, um, being cushioned in a tradition that knows how to handle these states of consciousness. If I'm sitting in a Zen ashram, I'm going to be doing okay when I actually stare into the void and I enter into the dark night of the soul, you know, or if I touch samadhi. These types of experiences, typically those types of uh, 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 sanghas, right, they know how to hold that type of consciousness. But often what we see in religion, if we see it in the typical church, is that when you have an awakening experience, it's often threatening and seen through the lens of threatening to the pastor, because now you're circumventing the person that stood in between you and divinity, in between you and God. Then also they have no idea what to do with you. And it threatens you to actually see a lot of the trauma that's been imposed and inflicted by certain types of religions right so it's tough to navigate these it's really tough it's really tough i mean i know for myself when i first had my experiences you know my parents were the first people that i told about them and they were like what (laughs) like what are you talking about is this the devil is this satanic like what is happening here and yet the positive aspects of it right? The sense of peace and joy and this deep relaxation that the body kind of goes into all these positive aspects. You can't refute that it is a good thing that's happening. But to your point is like, if you're in a situation where there's no affirmation of your experience, my brother's a therapist. He says to me all the time, like, if you went to a therapist, you would have been a mess, bro. Like they would have medicated you up and you'd have been like, God knows where, right? And that happens. You know what happens in this world? People have these experiences that are so um, unconventional and they don't fit the paradigm, right? That they're kind of taking root in. And for me, you know, it's hard to even say, you know, how to even, you know, intervene in those kind of situations because a lot of it is just chance, is luck. Um, for me, for example, I had the mind to go and look for, you know, affirmation, to go look for that. I could have just stayed with myself and been confused, right? But the Enneagram, for example, I'm a type six, which means that I'm a head type. And so yep. I want to understand what's yeah. happening, right? So I want to go and try to find authority or somebody's going to tell me what I went through, right? So I think it depends also on the personality, right? How's the personality response to these experiences, right? If you're a different type, you might be more inclined to go within and look for answers. You're a gut type, for example, you might be like, Forget authority. I want to go inside myself and find the truth for myself. 
right? But I think it depends on your personality. It depends on how your life is set up. And, and obviously, part of it to me is just there's grace, there's luck, there's chance, um, you know, and everybody has a different starting point. I mean, everybody's going to start the same place or end at the same place. And so it, it's, it is really diverse in how this thing's happening. It doesn't happen like linearly. It's, it's almost like a chaotic sort of disordering of things happening. And the order comes much later. You know, I almost find in a paradoxical fashion that the stronger the ego in some ways, the more you can actually navigate through. Like there, there's a version of like strength of ego or solidity of ego that helps you to moor yourself to this reality. Because I think a lot of times, whatever those egoic structures that we've created and the ego development that we've created, whatever those experiences that are coming down are going to come through that level of ego. Right. And there's this interesting kind of, um, there, there's an interesting there's been a ton of mystics that aren't really developed. I mean, this is, let me just pause. This is a huge piece that Wilbur talks a lot about for anybody who's listening. And this is one of the gifts that I've taken from Wilbur. He's like, these Zen masters sleeping with their students, it doesn't take away any of their realization. It's just they're underdeveloped in terms of their ethics, right? In terms of their like power dynamic kinds of structures. And so his big contribution is, is, to really develop these different lines of development within the egoic structure. So going back to, to kind of the, the conversation we have around all these different flows and these different things that are emerging, in a strange paradoxical way, the stronger the ego, the better chance in a way you are of navigating through the destruction of the ego. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, for there is no self, that's first be a self. Right. Yeah. And it's very true. I mean, honestly, you know, I had a very healthy ego. I had great parents. I felt loved. Um, I felt seen most of the time, most of the time. And and there's this notion of like what's good enough, right? Like what's good enough? It's not going to be perfect, you're not going to be like super self-actualized as a 16-year-old, right? But what's good enough? Because once the ego structure is threatened by these experiences. I mean, they're powerful, you know, and there's always a risk of psychosis or dissociation or some type of pathological sort of unfolding. But again, I, I do come back to these, the inherent intelligence of these experiences as well, is that when they happen, how they happen, you know, I've learned to trust that I'm ready for it, right? And that's also part of the ego, right? Having that trust in yourself that I might feel like I'm losing my shit. I'm losing everything. But... I can handle it, right? I can take it versus like sort of being like I'm fragmented and I can't deal with this and I end up, you know, in a wholesome place, right? And I'm not doing well. And yeah. so I think the egoic development is more important than the spiritual development side. I mean, I think a lot of people want to jump to the spiritual stuff, but I really do believe after kind of seeing my own life unfold and those of other people that having a strong psyche, having a strong sense of inner resilience, I mean, those things are indispensable for development, because these transpersonal states, I mean, they're a force of nature. I mean, they really are. And outside of the right egoic sort of solidity, as you said, it's really difficult to even get make any progress. I mean, in what point is to have an experience that, that keeps you stuck, right? The experience is supposed to happen and it's supposed to move you. But if you have a fractured ego, the experiences come, you're just stuck. Like nothing changes, you're just stuck. Having these breakthroughs and nothing's actually changing. 
right? But with the ego structure being intact, it can hit you and you can move. You can actually be in the flow going forward into a higher state. But the more fractured the ego is, the more difficult it is to actually sort of integrate and ground that higher experience. So the egoic solidity is crucial. We have the pre-rational, the rational, and now we're talking, we've been talking about the trans-rational, this, this movement into trans-rational consciousness. And I, I want to kind of move the conversation a little bit into what, what you're seeing and humanity as a whole. And, and I want to almost, I, I don't want almost, I, I want to utilize that same idea of going from pre-rational to rational to trans-rational from a phylogenic or a group consciousness kind of perspective. So <clears throat> let me set it up this way. So we can all go back to, to pre-hunter-gatherer and we can all kind of understand that pre-rational or even like mythic kinds of structures in our consciousness. We have the enlightenment. It starts to really, the, the amount of rationality is really burgeoning and it's creating some phenomenal things. And we're looking around the planet right now and the things that create humanity is created because of a rationality. And it's really extraordinary. What I'm seeing is that this breakdown, we're hitting the limits of rationality. <laughs> we're starting to bump up against things like quantum mechanics where rationality does not, we try to like penetrate quantum mechanics with rationality and you're like bro that does not <laughs> not fit there it does not right. work. moreover transrational kinds of states of consciousness are these states of consciousness where we're not thinking from our neuronal network we start to move past the neuronal network we move and we start to think not just from a heart space or a gut space but it moves beyond the meat bag we start to experience the intelligence of the earth and it, it, we start to to hear plenty of of stories where people will say like i literally could feel the mountain thinking for me these types of like uh the 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 mind the center of consciousness or the cognition these words don't even do it justice but mm -hmm. there are these transrational places that are egoic centers of consciousness start to expand out past our normal egoic structures. <laughs> so rationality has given us this modern world with some remarkable things, but right now we're seeing that those systems are reaching their endpoints. We're if we don't actually start to work in conjunction and unity with this planet, this planet will cough us off of it basically mm -hmm. it was just like, she'll give us a little flick and we're gone yeah, for sure because we are her we are this planet where there's mm -hmm. no difference between jared and the trees that i'm seeing outside mm -hmm. so i'm curious about your perspective as the group consciousness I think there's individuated consciousness, there's larger group consciousness, and then there's sort of like humanity's consciousness as a whole. It's kind of like a Hegelian type of perspective. And I wonder if <clears throat> right now you're seeing so many of these like dissipative types of structures that are really beginning to emerge and percolate to the surface. And, and what you're seeing on, on that 
larger group perspective and the version of like human consciousness itself emerging into more transrational types of states. Yeah. So one thing that I've, I've noticed in my own journey is what is the role of self in all of this, right? Because, I mean, self-consciousness, self-awareness, because, you know, my experience, we're moving towards a state of no self, right? We're moving away from this survival sort of state of self with all of its personality defenses and all of its, you know, ways in which it protects itself, right? It's almost we were self-emerged, right? So we can actually survive and get to the state of rationality and really use our brains and engage the world in a very rational way. But the transrational stage is a place where nature is actually coming back in a way that the intelligence of how we are functioning is now not based on the mind anymore. So for example, as we get to these transrational states, there's not much thought anymore. There, there isn't much will or much determination or much um, intentionality even. There's a sense of being um, sort of possessed or um, uh, absorbed by something much larger and we're like an instrumentation for it. So it was a sense of something's passing through us and self is like this little obstruction where the flow can't get through. But as self gets more porous and more permeable, nature sort of comes through self. And that intelligence is dynamic. I mean, it's, it's, it's intelligence that is not based on the mind. It doesn't make sense. It's not based on history or it's not based on judgment and duality and polarization. It's an intelligence that is what is. Like what has to happen, happens. And it's a way of being that is vastly different from self-conscious as we know it. And yet a lot of us who peak those sort of experiences of no self, we're threatened by that because self is what we are comfortable being in, right? And without a self, what is it, right? There's no self-awareness. There's no Jared speaking. There's just a person speaking. It's like, what's happening, right? So there are a lot of questions about ontological questions that come up existential questions come up. It's like, it's a, a huge mind jarring experience. And so what I see is that we're moving towards a transrational state where nature itself is sort of subsuming uh, a higher intelligence and in how we are experiencing ourselves and how we are interacting with the world. And so even though we are hearing more about these breakthroughs, they're still pretty rare. I mean, you're talking about probably under 10% still around the world. Um, and so in my opinion, like what's really happening is that those who are making these breakthroughs are really affecting that sort of that larger field. Okay. There's these ripple effects that are happening in the field. And I, I do think that we feel more of that than the actual numbers themselves. Those who are really breaking through these higher stages, we're feeling the impact of those breakthroughs as opposed to the sheer numbers of them, because there aren't really many people kind of going through them. We all have our experiences of that sort of peak state and not knowing that we're having them. But I do think that we're moving towards a transrational state where nature itself is the unknowable intelligence that's sort of governing how things are happening, how things are unfolding. So like the cosmos is waking up to itself and we're almost like a, a physical instrument of that. And it's not based on thinking or memory or any type of faculty of self. And it's very, um, it's very, it's profound. It's also very confusing. 
because it doesn't actually compute to self. Self is like, what, what is that? Am I devolving, you know, because I'm not using my mind anymore? And it's yeah. like, no, actually, it's a forward step. But yeah. the self is almost needed to prepare us for living without a self. Yeah. And it's that movement that I think is happening more, is this movement towards self, this integration towards self. No self, I mean. Yeah, you might spell self as with a capital S type of self, right? Um, I very much agree with the numbers being smaller, but the impact being greater, and we're starting to feel that. One of the indicators that I, I see as, as indicative of this is that is this massive breakdown in epistemology where we're having a really hard time making sense and navigating knowledge and our way to orient on this planet. And I was really struggling with this about a year ago. And I just really sat with this question a lot of like, man, what is going on with our epistemologies? And how come there's such this radical, is it just the internet that's giving, that's curating these different versions of, of knowledge base for us? And so we live in these like filter bubbles and we are just experiencing different um, versions of reality. And I was like, no, it's deeper than that. I think that we're deeper, we're feeling on a deeper level versions of this planet. And I think it speaks to what we're talking about with this trans rationality starting to emerge. But you also spoke about ontology. And I remember a day that it was pretty profound for me. It was really wrestling with this question of why is there such a breakdown in epistemology and that it hit me? It hit me that a breakdown in epistemology was would, would precede an evolution or a change in human ontology. And the second I was like, that, that, that hit me. I was like, oh, that makes sense. And, and it feels like our ontology is in a moment of flux right now. And that, that breakdown of, of epistemology would precede that event. And once I had that, it really contextualized in a way that helped me orient. Um, and it's made a lot more sense ever since. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, it's funny because I think what you're describing is actually the dark night experience, right? Because um, I think we're going through one right now, right? Planetarily, a dark night of the soul, so to speak, because every dark night is caused by a breakdown in epistemology, right? The knowing that you had, right, no longer applies. And so therefore, there's a change in ontology or a change in how you are being. And so really, if there's no change in epistemology, there's no change in ontology, right? Because one sort of precedes the other, like you said. And my own experiences of the dark night is like you have to sort of surrender into the unknowingness of the loss of epistemology as you knew it in order to break into that next higher stage of ontology, if that makes sense. Because one really leads to the other. They aren't really separate either because they're both correlated. There's always a epistemological state and an ontological state. But it's just that our knowingness there's, is directly correlated to our beingness. There's a sense of what we know is connected to how we be. And so really the breakdown on the epistemological level is needed before there's actually a breakdown or a change on the ontological level. And that's really the nature of the dark night, is that we actually are dying to our knowing as we knew it and are moving into a knowing that's based on a deeper quality of being. So that's kind of how I look at that. That's so cool. It reminds me of one of the greatest, I, I so 
value this teaching I received from a local Zen teacher here in Salt Lake, um, Diane Musho Roshi uh, Hamilton. She's phenomenal. I'm not sure if you know her or not. And she was speaking about the bardos. And for those of you who don't know, the bardos are the space in between lives uh, within Buddhism. And um, the, the bardo is this extraordinarily <clears throat> disorienting uh, experience. We die and we go into this bardo, this, this middle place before we get kicked back out into a new life. And it's disorienting and it's really confronting and it's, it's really hard. And so the goal in Buddhism is to stabilize your consciousness that you can navigate these bardos in a, in a depth and solidity of consciousness that you can then actually insert your will and more choosing upon the next version of life. So you can escape the wheel of samsara, basically. What's so cool about this lesson is that it doesn't just apply to in-between lives. It actually applies to this life. That if you're noticing you're in that bardo, it has similar qualities. When you're in between things that you're doing, it's actually really disorienting. And what it does is that it kind of like jars you into like your status quo in a sense. It kicks you back to wherever you're kind of like normal center of gravity is. But if we can practice more and deepen and develop our consciousness and solidity of consciousness to navigate those bardos, which we're speaking about in this context as being those dark nights of the soul, that on the other side of those, we can emerge from a deeper space of consciousness or more kind of like will or choice in that next place because those bardos act as like a reorienting to the, like the status quo. And it requires that we remain deep and solidified through these really uncomfortable spaces. So that on the other side, we emerge in a more um, evolved space. And I've, I've used that teaching in a lot of ways just in my life whenever I'm moving from a big place to another I'm in a couple of those in my life right now it's tough it is tough to stay grounded in these dark nights of the soul and you and I had connected before this call about both of us experiencing a couple of these dark nights of the soul so if I may I'd like to offer like a story about what, what I'm going through in my personal dark night of course so I did mushrooms a while back and I was not very bright. And I said, Hey, show me my blind spots. And so the mushrooms did. <laughs> so <laughs> it was not the best idea. And in retrospect, it was phenomenal. And the way I can describe it is that, um, I could, I started to feel into my own experience of mysticism and I, I just wanted, I had this desire to like, to like own and, and declare my own mysticism. Right. So in the experience, I like did it to myself, like, yes, I'm a mystic. And then it didn't happen exactly this way, literally, but the only way I can describe it metaphorically is I'm, I'm sitting in this kind of meditative space and I'm in this like labyrinth in my consciousness. And there's all these rooms that I was looking at. 
And I moved past this room labeled enlightenment. I'm like, <laughs> of course I'm going in that room. So I open the door and I jump in this room, right? And I get inside this room. The moment I get inside this room in my consciousness, it felt like the worst trap I had ever been in. And I was stricken with fear. I was overcome by this incredibly deep amount of fear. And so I did what I could. I, I'm a bit of a psychonaut. I, I've been in these places before. I did what I could to like make it through the night just really having been hit with this deep fear. The next day I'm talking to some friends. They're like, got it, you know, we kind of worked through a lot of this. And it was really amazing because what it came to is like, look, man, your ego thinks it's enlightened, but it's not. Your ego is not the thing that's enlightenment. Your ego is not the thing that is mystic, like it can experience these mystical states of consciousness, but you are trapped in the illusion of thinking that. So I was like, cool. So then a few days later, I was like, well, I'm going to start drinking. So I, I started drinking some alcohol and I went a little bit of a bender. And after, not a little bit, I went on a bit of a bender. And then like 10 days later, God hit me in the head with a two by four. I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> the way I experienced it was I was listening to Alan Watts and then I was listening to QAnon bad combination but that's what I did. <laughs> and you know those movies that have like the conspiracy theorists and they have like the strings and all the dots yeah. connected to these disparate yeah, yeah. places yeah i saw my mind doing the same thing so this is after a night of drinking and after a bit of a bender and then like two weeks after that mushroom experience mm -hmm. so then then i get hit in the head with a two by four and I see my brain doing it. The moment I saw my brain doing it, it was an explosion of fear. Let me also back up and add another point that's important. When I went into that room on the mushroom journey labeled enlightenment, I walked in, it felt like a trap and I immediately felt I had this profound experience that I had stepped into the room of my own psychosis. Hmm. I was like, oh, there it is. There's my own psychosis. But when you contextualize psychosis in the version of like a psilocybin trip, it makes more sense. So the second time, 10 days later, when God hits me in the head with a two by four, it felt like I went back in that room and I was touching psychosis again. Mm. But this time it wasn't aided from a psilocybin journey. So it was, it was the deepest fear I've ever experienced in my life. And that's not hyperbole. Because from an Enneagram 7, my favorite thing is like my brain, right? You know, it's like I can navigate these things. And it felt as if I was losing my mental faculties legitimately, that I had stepped back into the, the room, labeled enlightenment, but actually as my own psychosis. And it kicked me into this sort of dark night of the soul experience where It's been an unfolding journey. There's a lot to say about it, but to keep, to, 
to keep it brief, what I started to see was how my own mind likes to get to likes to numb out. My ego likes to numb out from discomfort and pain. And in a sense, it goes back to navigating those bardos. I could see that every time my evolutionary kinds of processes are trying to help me unfold, I'm defaulting back in those middle places, in those bardo realms throughout my day that kind of disorient me back to my status quo. And that it's actually impeding my own evolution. Is this making sense? Mm-hmm. So I saw how addiction works in my own psyche. And now I'm four months sober from substance, but more than sober from substance, the deeper work is to see how sobriety works inside of my own psyche. And to see that that intoxication or numbing out happens whenever I feel fear and anxiety and discomfort. And to stay as present as I can through those experiences That's the thing that it feels like it may not be the grandeur of the dark night of the soul, but it's pretty damn impactful for me. It sucks pretty bad, Mm -hmm. but I've been trying to navigate those waters as well as I possibly can. Um, I don't know how to transition back to you, but it feels like you're No, I mean, you did a good job at uh, describing your experience. Um, yeah, one thing I got out of that is for me, I realized that the suffering of the dark night is usually caused by our unwillingness to surrender the identity that has been let go, right? It's something's been shattered and we have the pieces now. And it's like in our fear, we want to grab onto all the pieces that no longer fit together. And so we try to put them back together. It's like, this is psychosis is like our inability to let go of the pieces that have been shattered. It's like you have a million pieces in front of you and the self that used to be solid is now totally shattered. And in our fear, we're trying to sort of, you know, reform all the pieces back together. And we get this little structure back and it's like, this structure is not even, doesn't work anymore, right? I realized in my own experience that part of it is letting go of the known pieces and sort of falling back and adhering to the unknown that's kind of witnessing the destruction of the self, if that makes sense. It's, it's sort of like my suffering, I've been through that too, where it's like, oh my God, I'm losing my mind. We're both head types, right? So it's a fear of chaos. <laughs> and yeah. so it's like, we're in this state where it's like, I'm losing my mind, but I, I realized that the liberation is when you are able to kind of disidentify with the suffering fractured self and kind of falling back and identifying with the quiet, embracing sort of witness and kind of allowing the structure in front to just kind of disappear, right? Because it's our grasping and wanting to kind of fix it and put it back together. And we're trying to reformat it based on our our own understanding of what is happening. But yet to me, it's like the agnosticism is what really liberates the soul in these states, is realizing that the epistemological knowing that I had has been shattered. Great, right? Let me actually let that go and just default back to this larger context of being that's sort of watching, observing, and in many ways, lovingly is holding the entire suffering itself. 
right? Because then what happens is that that new self that's kind of hanging back can kind of come to the foreground, right? Because that new self is kind of always hanging out in the background, yeah. right? And it's kind of waiting to move in. But as, every time we try to hold on to that fractured self in the dark night, it just doesn't work, right? The attachment, the fear, right? And then we have addictions, right? That kind of come in to cope with the fear, right? So it's like a, a spiral, right? That you're kind of going through. In my experience, when we're able to sort of let the fractured self go and then understand there's a, a witness that's right there that's kind of really watching all of this passively and kind of defaulting back to that, there's a shift of identity from the fractured self to this emerging self. And at that point, you can really step into this new sense of being that's whole and it feels complete and it feels just organic versus I think a lot of people actually, Jared, are stuck in that fractured state for their whole life. It's like they have a breakthrough, but they don't know how to navigate. Like you said, they, they just don't know. It's like, I got to cope with this, right? I, I've been fractured. I have to you know, get an addiction or get a new relationship or whatever we go to, to sort of feel safe, right? We got to do that to sort of um, anesthetize the pain that we have. But the, the courage is really the ability to step back and let go. And let go is is always to me one of the biggest things in the dark night to do. It's like you have to like let go, and it's the hardest thing because you're you're letting go into an abyss. It's like if I let go of this, now I'm now in an abyss. What's that? Yeah. Right? It's totally contextless. There's nothing there. It's like it feels like death. It's like if I let go of this fracture self, at least I know the pieces, <laughs> right? But it's like this abyss that's hanging back here. It's like I have no clue. And it's that sort of haunting quality of the witnessing abyss that we sort of dissociate from and kind of disown instead of actually falling back into it and owning it, if that makes sense. It makes That's been my experience. I, I, um, in men's work, I've done a lot of men's work since we last been in each other's lives. Five years of doing a lot of men's work. And so much of men's work is facing your own death. And there's a part of our psyches and egos that there's like a layer and it's like, this is like, here's our life above this layer. And then below our life is like death. And below that is soul. And it's all this other, like you're talking about with the abyss. And some of us kind of get close to that line of death inside of our own consciousness. We do it through ayahuasca. We do it through these extreme experiences. We do it through these rituals. We'll stick our hands in these like, crazy poisonous fire ant rituals of becoming a man and like the jungles of South America, all various types of things where we face our own death. And there's something that emerges on the other side of our own death that actually is true life. And as you said, I love, which is we're anesthetizing ourselves from death. You know, for the first time in our history, we don't see dead people. We don't experience dead people. A hundred years ago, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, it was very common for when my dad died, I would pick his body up with my own hands, go out to the backyard, dig his own grave. I would dig his grave and I would place his dead body there or some version of that where we're intimately engaged in death and we're not seeing death, we're not experiencing death. We have removed it from our life and it's this grand illusion that we don't have to face death and we don't have to be with it. 
And so we're <laughs> embarking toward <laughs> reckoning, it seems, right now. Yeah, so I, and a part of the process too, Jared, is not realizing that the darkness is actually light. Yes. Right? It's like we don't understand that. So we think the darkness is just darkness, but it's actually a light that is unrecognized by consciousness, right? You got to be in it long enough to have your vision adjust to really see the new self, to see the new being that you're becoming. And I think a lot of us don't understand that either. It's like, it's like being in a dark room. If the lights go off, it's pitch black, and then give yourself a few minutes, and all of a sudden you start seeing things in the room, right? So it's, re it's really having that faith that the darkness and the light are sort of um, you know, they're in it together yeah. and we have to sort of be willing to actually be in it long enough. It might take months, you know, even, even years to actually be in it long enough to let the eye of light kind of penetrate our awareness. So it's also very important to mention. It, it's a good point because that's the paradox that we, that's so hard to navigate, but all of the mystics, one of the things that's replete within mysticism is this paradoxical nature of light being imbued within darkness, darkness being imbued within light. That's the yin and yang, right? And so once you break down from the layer of non-dualism into dualism, there's Shiva and Shakti, but you'll find Shakti in Shiva and vice versa. Right. And you'll always find these versions of this. It's like one thing I've been loving is Sean S. Bjorn Hargan's notion of doubleness, if you're familiar. I'm not. Mm -hmm. it, it's a whole tangent we don't need to go on, but it's just another version of this parado paradoxical kind of understanding. Um, it, you know, like we're talking about, where you have to face your own death to actually live, or, or as like Don Juan would say, you know, live with death on your shoulder type of, of idea. So makes total sense to me. Mm -hmm. you, uh, you had mentioned like experiencing some deep dark nights of the soul. Do you want to talk about that personally? Yeah, sure. Um, so let's see. A few years back, um, I was actually sitting in class before we graduated and I was in a lecture and I felt something drop through my body and out my feet. And I was like, what was that? Right. And that's, that's weird. And I, you know, got in the car, drove home and just kind of observing like something's weird. <laughs> right. And for it took me a, a while, like really months to really understand what happened. But my sense of identification with the personality of Sean dropped out of my body. And so there was this sense of not having a person or not being a person, even though I th still had thoughts, still had feelings, but they weren't really personal to me. They were just kind of arise on their own. And I couldn't actually claim them as being my own. And uh, I was really depressed for a while, for about a year and a half, two years, because I felt like nothing could bring me happiness. It was like, I can't even delight in my own thoughts. And I love my mind. I love sitting and creating all these thoughts and, you know, debating all these things. And none of that brought me any happiness anymore. Like my feelings, empty, void, nothing could touch me. It was like I went from being a solid figure to a ghost. And like, I'm like, I'm still in the world and moving around and doing all these things, but I can't actually identify or touch myself anymore. I can't feel myself anymore. It's a very strange experience. And talking about psychosis is like, am I now dissociating, you know, all the time now where I don't even identify with myself or my own emotions or feelings. And as a nurse, I'm in the hospital, I'm talking to patients and you see your, your words coming out. It's almost like you're watching an echo. It's like you're, there's talking happening 
but there's no connection to the words coming out. There's nothing. It's this total, like a ghost is speaking and there's just no sense of connection to what's happening to any reality at all. And for about a year and a half, two years, I was really just depressed, like in a cave. And I was still functioning just fine. You know, I was going to work and you know, I was doing all the things that I had to do. Um, but I, until I realized that I had to let that finite attachment go, it was like I'm attached to being a person because if I'm not a person, then I'm crazy, right? If I'm not a person, I'm crazy. If I can't associate with my own mind, then I'm not a person. And so I had to sort of let that go. And I realized that there was this larger sort of identity kind of hovering in the background and was sort of saying, like, let Sean go and now identify with this sort of larger cosmic sense of knowing. And it took a while, several months to sort of lean into that. Once I did, I was more free than I was even when I had myself or had my sense of my own mind. Right. So that's why I mentioned that point earlier, where it's like there's always uh, another identity sort of lined up to be revealed that comes when we finally accept the loss and the death. It took me a while to do that. When I finally did it, I felt so liberated. And my wife even said to me, like, my husband's gone. Like, your eyes look different. You know, and we had, we had a struggle in our marriage. Like, she was like, you know, I don't know you. Who's this person? It's very hard to explain because you're still sitting and talking, you're eating, you're laughing, doing all the things, you're sharing things. And there's that missing component of what it means to be with another person. So there's a ghostly sort of presence here. And I don't know, like, who I'm talking to, right? And it dawned on me, like, wow, like, this journey is going to another level where I'm now depersonalizing to such an extent so that this transpersonal becomes more of a reality in this sort of experience. And I told her, I said to her, I was like, well, I said, you know, Sean, as you knew him, is gone, right? But his soul is still there, right? There's some type of element that is still individualized that's not consciousness. I think a lot of us say self and soul are the same thing. They're not the same thing, in my opinion. The soul is that is that primordial quality, primordial quality of us that is self as a faculty of the soul, the way that I see it. And so when self starts to kind of die off, the soul is still there as a natural sort of um, contemplative sort of experience. And so even though, you know, I was gone in terms of my physical kind of presence, the soul quality was still there that she had to sort of learn how to tune into more because I don't feel Sean. I don't feel his presence but I do feel his soul. There's something that's behind the self that is still there that I can still relate to and feel like, okay, he's still here. And so there's all these adjustments that you have to make because people that know you really well are like, I had a close friend of mine, um, very perceptive guy. He said to me, when I look at you, I just see death. And I was like, how, how does he know that? Right. He's, he's very perceptive. And I thought, I'm laughing, doing all the things, and he saw this in me. Like I just see death. There's no one home inside. There's no one talking. Like, who's, where's my friend? And I'm like, wow, right? And so there are a lot of adjustments that have to be made as you sort of shed and strip all this self. And it took a couple of years, but after I finally settled into the state, I realized that I indeed, I was dying to my personal identity. I was dying to my sense of self. And to be okay with that, which takes tremendous courage, and being a type six and being a fear-based type, you wouldn't even imagine the scenarios personality kind of puts up to sort of protect itself. So even leaning into courage and leaning into faith and strength 
and understanding that whatever is kind of moving into you now is going to support this next development. So this occurred two, three years ago, and I'm still in that kind of state now, but now there's a sense of peace and acceptance around that versus me kind of yearning for what was, we yearning for what used to be. Mm-hmm. And now I'm just accepting the fact that, you know, you know, this is how your life is right now. And there's actually more freedom here, right? There's less attachment. There's less um, contraction. I mean, you're more open, right? The body is experienced as being more open. And so all these dark nights are, they're stripping us of our former sense of self. And we're going to a deeper sense of self. And the self gets wider and wider and wider and wider. And right now, my experience is that my identity is more so the universal awareness or the cosmic subjectivity than it is any personal subjectivity. Like, for example, I went skydiving over the weekend for the first time, and it was crazy. And I, I, I get out the plane, and I'm jumping out, and I'm like, this is not even like, it doesn't feel real. So this is not even real. So I land. And then I just go home and like nothing ever happened. Nothing happened. It was like, I went skydiving. My brother's like, oh my God, it's so amazing. It's so crazy. And I'm like, yeah, nothing happened for me. I just jumped out of a plane at 18,000 feet and I land and I'm like, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And that was it. Like things, there's no self to really feel gratified or feel happy or I did it or there's n- those subtle emotions, nothing. They're just emptiness. And it dawned on me last night, I was like, even intense experience dissolves into the into nothingness. Even what's intense no longer touches you. And it's kind of heartbreaking. I used to cry about this. I was like, my humanity is dying. I can't even enjoy simple pleasures anymore. It's like everything that you experience just disappears. It's like jump out of a plane. And it's very intense physically. And it's like it never happened. And that's like everything in life. It's like, let's love making. It's, it's going to work. It's like any experience you can think of. It's, it's kind of like it falls through and out. It like doesn't touch you. It's like an experience usually sticks on you. It's like the experience kind of falls through you like a, like a, a, a translucent veil and it disappears. And the experience is like gone. It's not there anymore. It's a very odd experience. And so you, you kind of have to learn to adjust and kind of learn to trust that these, these processes are happening you know, from grace and from a larger intentionality that's beyond the self. What do you feel emerging now? I mean, that I love the way you describe it. It falls through you. You can't touch it. You can't grasp it. It's just, it comes and then it falls away. I would imagine a person could feel like it's not nihilism, but it's some version of like, why would I want that? Or like, well, that sounds terrible. Can you speak to that and also what, what you're starting to feel is emerging on the other side? Yeah, it is, it is terrifying and tragic in a lot of ways. And in some ways, for me, it's totally godless. Like there is no sense of God anymore, right? It's a total um, empty, simple state. Like I tell my brother all the time, I'm, I'm just a simple man at this point because all the sort of theology and all the frameworks you used to use to interpret your experiences, all that falls away. And the paradox is that I feel like I'm not evolving at all because you feel so simple. It's like, I'm just like a, a baby. It's like, I feel like I'm just, I'm just here. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing here, right? I don't know anything. I don't have anything to share. You know, my mind is blank. And there's still adjustments happening with learning how to sort of be present as you're speaking 
and knowing that the words that are coming out don't really have a source. So it's kind of hard. It sounds kind of, you know, contradicting, but you're speaking, but there is no sense of like origination of where the thoughts coming from. You're trying, you're trying to meet the moment wherever you go and things just start, kind of come out, but it is terrifying. And for me, my understanding of this journey is that it's really all about truth at the end of it. And when I was 15 years old, I used to pray. I was, I used to say, God, show me the truth, right? And yeah, you don't know what you're asking for because when it comes, it's not anything like you thought it was going to be. You thought it would be some kind of intellectual truth or something. And it's like, well, the truth is that, you know, the self is not going to be around, you know? And it's like, wait, what? You know, if you had known that, I wouldn't have prayed for it because it's absurd, right? To lose yourself. Um, and, but what's so odd about it is that I wouldn't want it any other way. It's like the truth is like, give me the, if I stand at the edge of ultimate truth and there's just nothing and that's the truth, fine. I'd rather have that than all the illusions of theology and religion and all these things. But it turns out that this sort of vast emptiness is full of truth, is full of light, and is full of, you know, revelation, all these beautiful things, but they aren't really rational things. So they're even hard to sort of communicate because they don't actually make sense to the mind. Um, and so my recommendation is that, you know, if your journey is not about truth, then you yeah, for a rude awakening because the truth is really what this thing is all about. It's like every religion is about truth in its own way. And, and so for me, it's like, you know, as one truth falls away, another one's revealed. You kind of keep moving forward and forward and forward. And as you get to more and more truth, you lose more and more of yourself. So it's almost like as self decreases, truth increases in some sense. Um, so yeah, it's not, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. I'll tell you that. Um, but if you do have that desire <laughs> for truth, it's worth it. <laughs> that is a hell of an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking in these grand, huge kinds of, these are pretty big narratives, right? We're in like Nietzsche type of territory and beyond in this search for truth. I want to pull it back down because we're both coaches and we both work in the realm of actually pushing through ways of being to allow other ways of being to emerge on the other side. And I'm seeing kind of a, a, a fractal emergent like starting to happen right now. And so I want to jump down the scale of fractals to like more space where practical things <laughs> at Starbucks would understand what the hell we're talking about. Yeah. So if, but I don't want to just jar the conversation to a left turn. So if there's anything else you wanted to add before we kind of went to that place, please. No, you know, it's just that okay. I think um, one thing that happens is that you're moving into more simplicity mm. is that things get more simple. Yeah. Um, and that's really the, the paradox is that you're going from complexity to simplicity and the mind expects it to be the opposite. Like I'm simple now, I'll get more complex. But the reality is that, you know, nature is simple. So as we move more towards sort of that selfless territory, it's a movement into simplicity and ordinariness. Yeah. And it's really the self that kind of superimposes the meaning and the ideas and labels and all these sort of things that we do to give our experiences meaning. But as we get further down the road, it's like all those things don't matter anymore. They kind of fall away. And you kind of look back at the self 
as like this great deceiver in some way. (laughs) It's like the self had all these beliefs and ideas and opinions and interpretations, all these things. And now that they start dying off, it's like the self was just there just as a hoax of some kind, you know? But it's a hoax that's necessary that you kind of have to live through. You can't just be like, all right, it's a hoax. I'm not going to deal with it anymore. It's like you have to embrace it. And I'm of the school that we have to go through self. We can't just jump over it. You have to go through it. And that means there's all, all of its delusions and all of its, you know, beliefs and ideas and labels, interpretations um, to get to this more simple sort of state, this simple existence. Um, and so to put it simply, you know, God is not like anything we think it is. You know, we think God is this, you know, um, sophisticated kind of being. But ontologically, God is very simple. It's just as the self is all that complication that we sort of project onto God. But yeah, that's what I was saying to end that segment. It's, it's so cool. It's so cool. I'm having such a good time right now. <laughs> what I notice about is people like come to me all the time and they're like, hey, I got this problem. I got this thing in my life. And they bring it up and they're like, how do I change this thing? And what I've always had the experience is, not only personally, but the, what I hear, what people come, is this kind of like a hole that's poked through the self. And the self is seeing through this hole. And it's like this piece of information that's coming. And something is moving through the self saying, hey, enough with this way of being. Enough with this paradigm. It's time to move past this paradigm. And, and as you've said, and we both said numerous times, we anesthetize ourselves into holding on to that way of being or paradigm. And because it's terrifying. It's scary. People have a very hard time letting that go. Um, and so the reason I wanted to bring that down is because we've been talking in this really like enlightenment, transrational, supramental mind type of concepts, but that doesn't exclude in any way, this conversation doesn't exclude in any way every single person on this planet at every single level, because the same things we're talking about as so so above, so below, and all the way down in this fractal sense, there's this way of it takes courage and it takes trust and grace to actually move and let go of these ways of being that something higher is telling us. It's kind of this intuitive sense saying, hey, time to move on. Whether it's my addiction story, whether it's a person saying I need to really move jobs, whether it's a person saying I want to move out of this relationship, it's not working. It may not be I need to move out of this relationship, but maybe I need to move into a new way of relating. But I wanted to connect on this level because I think there's a lot of rich territory here to bring it down from the 18 million foot view <laughs> to the ground level if we could. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny because I think as I become more simple, this becomes more important to me right? This becomes, this is divine to me, right? All of this, we normally call, you know, the profane, so to speak, you know, when you're early in the journey, this is actually where it's at. This divinity is right here. And for me as a coach, you know, one thing that I focus on a lot is having my clients connect to their own being 
or their own sense of being. So many of us are not being, we're just kind of walking around thinking and reacting, right? And so one thing that I focus on a lot with my clients is the somatic component is how do you actually, you know, lean into the support of your body, right? Throughout all these sort of changes, whether it's a relationship or whether it's um, a spiritual breakthrough or an emotional upheaval or a loss in your family, whatever is happening, because the body has this innate wisdom about it that we totally overlook. And as head types, you know, we definitely don't go there naturally. It's like it's the last thing we think about when it comes to resources, right? But the body is a profound resource and sort of teaching um, clients and showing them how to self-generate their own wisdom by sort of contacting the body through the breath, um, through mindfulness work, through feeling your feet, something as simple as that, and really grounding yourself You'll be surprised to find that integration happens quite naturally when the body supports the, the suffering or, what's, or whatever's happening that's disturbing. When the body is leaned into for support, that integration happens almost naturally, like autonomously. And so as a coach, you know, understanding the importance of the body and this role in integration and really kind of taking in absorbing the brunt of a lot of the suffering that we have and allowing the body to sort of integrate and to, you know, uh, dissolve a lot of the trauma, right? The body has amazing capacity to absorb and disperse and really alleviate pain and suffering. So for me, I'm really big on somatics at this point. You know, it was my growing edge as a coach coming up, like the body's your blind spot. And it's like, now it's like everything. It's like the body, I start with the body, right? Um, and contacting the body. And being present to the body because one thing i realized um recently is that the body is the contact point for divinity right all the divine god whatever you want to call it is all right here it's not out there it's not anywhere else but here so it starts and ends here in the body it's just that we think that it's somewhere out there but it's actually all in here and kind of teaching clients how to sort of contact and resource their bodies when they're going through things like that, they can become more self-generating um, and more uh, self-healing as well. Because as coaches, you don't want to keep clients in there forever. It's like, how can I get you to self-generate so that you can go out in the world and when something happens, you're not running back to me and trying to figure out how to get better, right? And so using the body as a resource, um, especially using the Enneagram as kind of showing what the blind spots are with that as well, is very important to me in my coaching. All right, you did it. You had enough Enneagram kind of little invitations. Let's do it. Let's jump into the Enneagram. So for those of you who don't know what the Enneagram is, I'm tempted to call it a typology system, but that would profoundly do it an injustice because it is so much richer than a personality system. Um, there was a Russian mystic, his name was Gurdjieff, who brought the Enneagram about to a couple of South American individuals who really brought it out. And it, it's, a, it's an old mystic kind of tool that emerged, I believe, from Sufism. Is that right? Like that it's thought to go back to Sufism? There are different tales about how yeah. it came about. Yeah. In any ways, it's, it is a tool that's really taking root right now and it's spreading like wildfire because of its profundity and because of how much it's landing with people the usefulness of it is really amazing and it's it is nine types 
Um, and it's not that, what, what do I want to say? I want to say this about it. Every human being is all nine types. But our egos basically say, no, I'm going to stick with one. And our egos have a sort of addiction or a stuckness in one type. I'm a type seven. I've had an eight wing, which means your wing is the, a number right next to you. So I could either be a seven with an eight or a six wing. So my ego will always choose to be a seven. And I've always identified with an eight wing. But I'm also noticing, Sean, this is interesting, might be interesting to you. With my newfound sobriety, I'm moving more into my six wing. And it's debilitating. <laughs> I don't know how you guys deal with this much fear. Like, point is, as I'm setting this up, there's it's a really profound, complex system. And I would highly encourage everyone out there, if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, go check it out. It's spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. And um, I once you catch the Enneagram bug, you kind of get, it's, it's really, it awakens people. And I'm noticing a resurgence in my own Enneagram um, explorations because of this newfound sobriety. So each type has a sacred virtue and a sacred vice. And the Enneagram seven, which I am sacred vice is gluttony. And the sacred virtue is sobriety. And it's not just sobriety of alcohol or whatever it is, it's sobriety of thought and feeling. And so <clears throat> you've mentioned numerous times about the six being this dominant fear type. We're both head types. Um, I, I, I'm stuck in this, like trying to set it up even more. So I'll stop trying to tell it about, but tell more about it. But the five, sixes and sevens are the head types. There are three different types. There's the head, body, and emotion types. And um, I love what you've been saying about the somatics because I couldn't agree more. We have to have this experience of uh, the deeper wisdom imbued within our bodies. And that experience is, in the circles at least that I run in, it's starting to emerge more and more. Um, I want to mention one more thing. Uh, I've been feeling and experience a lot that's been happening on the collective right now. And there is a sense of anxiety that is emerging in the collective. The collective of humanity, something is arising and bubbling. And there is this fear that is happening and everybody's feeling it to one level or another. It's coming through politics. You see what's happening in, in Myanmar. You see what's happening um, in Russia with these massive starts of riots what's happening here in American politics. We're seeing it with the breakdown of the ecological sphere, but we can all have this tension, right? It's happening in our body. There's something about it. It's saying something is big is happening at this moment. And Every one of us has a way to orient through this fear. Everyone has a, a thing that we're attached to. I was talking to my dad who's like, yep, destruction of the ecosphere is because it said it in, in Revelations and it said it in, you know, he went to the classic kind of Christian second coming type of experience. In my workings and going on, I, I, um, 
I think what's happening right now is we've been given all these tools like the Enneagram, like deeper wisdom in the body, like moving from pre-rational to rational to transrational. We're giving all these tools to say, hey, humans, it's time to evolve. Get going. So with all that being said, the Enneagram is... The Enneagram is uh, this new tool that's emerging that I'm noticing so many people are just having these like really profound waking up experiences through engaging and interacting with the Enneagram. Sounds like you've been having that. Uh, so I want to hear about your journey. I want to hear about what you have to say about the Enneagram. It's so, so cool. Give it to me. Give yeah, me it's, 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 it's really amazing, man. Um, <laughs> like you said, the way that I look at it is that, you know, each type is a defense strategy um against reality and so we're defending ourselves against something that's unknown to us and each type has a defense strategy and really the point of the enneagram is to look at your habits of attention is to look at the ways in which you do protect yourself right against what is what reality is, is happening in front of you and the big thing with it is observation is really observing your motivations for things, right? It's about motivation, not behavior, we like to say, right? Because all nine types can do all the behaviors, but what's the motivation? Why are you doing it, right? So it's more so a motivational system, right? So we're looking at, you know, why, you know, are you afraid, right? You know, why are you seeking out new experiences? And why are you afraid of imperfection? Whatever the, the fear is, looking at the fear and motivation behind it. Um, so the Enneagram, I'm trained in the narrative tradition, which is the Helen Palmer and David Daniel school. And they talk about what's called the vice to virtue conversion, which is basically knowing what your vice is in your type or your passion and the virtue. And they say that the path to spiritual growth, one of the paths is to sort of convert your vice, you know, to your actual virtue. So as a six, my vice or passion is fear, right? And for a lot of us who have done a lot of work in ourselves, we have to go back to earlier years to really see the type working, right? And so for me, I didn't know my type was at first. I made mean, my five, right? Because I love to create and think and, you know, write and things like that. But when I was 12, for example, I was very afraid. I was very anxious and terrified of death and all these crazy scenarios, you know, like there might be an asteroid coming to hit the earth tonight and I might get abducted, going to school tomorrow and all these crazy sort of fantasies that the sick kind of creates. Um, and so if you've done a lot of work on yourself, your type kind of be obscured because as you develop, your type doesn't look the same, right? There are lines of connection. You kind of look different. Um, and so one of the ways we talk about growing is how do we become more receptive, Right. And so for me as a six, when I was going through all these crazy experiences as a young kid, and I had all this fear, right? Not knowing at the time, but courage was my antidote to my fear. Like when I step into my courage, and courage for a six is actually embracing the unknown, right? Six is love, preparation. We love, you know, knowing what's going to happen before it happens, predicting things, looking for inconsistencies everywhere and tracking what could go wrong. But actually stepping into courage, right, and not having to have it all figured out, not having to have it all known ahead of time, liberates the soul. So I, I look back over my life now and realize, wow, like courage is actually working in me before I even think about the Enneagram. Like it's quite amazing to think about 
when you grow is usually your virtue that's kind of standing out, right? You're talking about sobriety, right? And so it's, it's profound and kind of understanding like when you're stuck, looking at the ways in which we are fixated in our type and how the actual virtue can kind of move us out of that fixation into a higher kind of way of being. Another thing about the Enneagram that's so amazing is what's called the holy ideas, which is sort of these soul archetypes that are sort of in some ways transrational archetypes that um, are able to sort of elevate the soul even past the virtue into a higher expression. So minds is holy faith, holy strength. And that allows me the ability to really lean into the unknown and really feel my strength and my own authority and really step into this kind of chaotic world that I live in experientially and knowing that I'm supported by life, that life is not going to desert me because I'm afraid, right? And so what's amazing about it is that as you grow and you Enneagram type, your defense strategies, they decrease so that you're less defended, meaning that you're not as reactive, you're not snapping on people, you aren't you know, doing what you do in your type because that's what you do. But with awareness and practice and having an inner witness and kind of seeing how the type is working, you make better choices, more better decisions, you're more aware. And also it's a lot of compassion that you learn, right? Because if you know your mom's a two, and she's very helpful all the time, you know, and you might not like it all the time, but that's what she does. She may not understand why she does it. It's like, oh, okay, I can see why she did that when I was a kid, right? Or your father was, you know, a nine. three or nine, you know? Um, my mom actually was a two, and my dad is actually a nine. Really? Sorry. My dad's a two, my mom's a nine. So we got to oh. flip. <laughs> um, so it brings compassion, right? Like my, my spouse is an eight, right? And so knowing that she's an eight, I can, I can understand the intensity the force that she has, you know, coming and moving in the world. Like I can understand yep. her sense of justice and passion for fairness and things that um, I may not think of naturally because I'm a six, right? And so it's really amazing. And the last thing with Enneagram that's another layer to it is the instincts and subtypes, which is a whole other level to it. But we have a primal sort of um, subtype that is either self-preservation, sexual one-to-one or social. And these are kind of our drives are more animalistic that predate the Enneagram. And so when you kind of put these two together, you get a nice flavor of your type. So there's a social six, there's a sexual one-to-one six, there's a self-preservation six. So you kind of get a feeling for how the type looks with the subtype attached to it. And so there's so many dimensions to it. I mean, you can go on and on. And it really just, um, gives you an opportunity to really just become more self-aware and you know no matter how developed you are enlightened you know not enlightened in the middle wherever you are this is relevant because your behavior matters how you treat other people matters um you know how you interact with the spaces you show up in matters right all that's enneagram sort of um, influence and one of my teachers always says that the personality is the vessel of the soul and so we see the personality with each other and we kind of interact with each other. And so the cleaner your personality is, the more pure you show up in spaces, which means that you are more undefended, you're more open, your heart's open, your mind's open, right? Your gut is open, your whole being's open. And when you're open, that's when the magic happens. That's when the grace happens. So that's really one of the benefits of the Enneagram. So um, I love it so much. You know, I've been studying now for a few years and it's been a game changer in understanding motivations and why I do what I do, 
why I tend to project on other people <laughs> sometimes. Um, so it's, it's amazing. So I definitely, um, if you're interested in the work, definitely uh, looking into it um, and kind of seeing where you are. I am so curious to know, I had the experience when I was looking at the sacred, uh, or excuse me, the vices juxtaposed with the Christian, like seven deadly sins. I was like, whoa, these are like the same. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, so seven of them are the same, two are not. I'm not sure which two are not included, actually. But they do, the theory is that the Christian mystics, the Sufis mystics, they all sort of had an influence on the Enneagram types. Um, Achazo, you know, as you mentioned, he's a South African uh, mystic. You know, he kind of pulled a lot of this stuff together for the first time back in the 50s, 60s. And uh, Claudio Naranjo was a uh, psychiatrist who sort of came and learned from Achazo and kind of added a lot of the psychological depth that we have to it. Um, but yeah, it's a very spiritual system. I mean, it's amazingly spiritual. And anytime you're trying to manage reactivity, it's spiritual. Right. right. We're trying to manage the ways in which you just react just because that's what you do. Right. Um, so the work is really deep because you're looking at the ways in which you are running on autopilot all the time. And the Enneagram kind of slows things down for you. You can sort of zoom out and really observe what's happening and make more conscious decisions. Um, so the spiritual component is just it's really profound. Yeah. Yeah. I it's been such a help for me in my coaching because I don't bring it up a lot in the coaching, but what I'll notice is like, oh, I'm working with a two or I'm working with a three, you know? And so a three will be talking about like, I need to get out and do more and do more. And I just, I got to get this done and this done. And I'm like, well, if you get that done, what will that give you? Well, and then I'll get a dead, dead. And I'm like, to really have a three sit with how, how worthy is a baby of being loved? How much does a baby accomplish in the day? Nothing. The baby is worthy of love and care and tenderness and its value is because of its humanity. It has nothing to do with its accomplishments, right? So it's those are the types of things that really help me help me slow a three down, not to negate the beauty of a three, but to also have that integrating kind of orientation for a three like mm -hmm. your value has very little to do with what you accomplish mm -hmm. your value has to do that you're an expression of the divine emerging in this moment right now because of you standing here in front of me mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and those are the things that not only does it help enrich my life i'm seeing so many new things start to emerge but it helps me also engage with other people in a way that i can just love them in a deeper level <clears throat> right right absolutely yeah it's not personal anymore once you understand the enneagram yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sean i could talk to you all day my friend <laughs> likewise it feels like it's probably about time we start wrapping down um let's do this again this was this was about as much fun as I've had in a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, anything you want to promote, plug, talk about, anything else to finish up here? Yeah, so um, I do offer coaching. Um, as you mentioned before, my website is Sean with a W, T Ellison.com. 
And you can go in there and book a console call with me uh, or Enneagram typing interview. So I do also typing. So if you want to know what your type might be, it's best to get a, a professional to help you figure out your type because it's really hard to take a little online test. They aren't that accurate most of the time. And so if you're interested in getting typed, I do that as well. Um, I'm a Christian mystic. And so if you're in that kind of milieu, if you're interested in Christian contemplation or Christian mysticism and you want to connect with me, you know, you always shoot me an email or my site. I have a contact section. You can submit something in there and I'll get back to you whenever I can. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's been great, Jared. You know, I love you, brother. Um, I'm glad we connected so many years ago and um, seeing your growth and transformation over the years has been a, a true joy to me to witness. And so thanks for having me, man. I'm really uh, very humbled to be here and to be a part of your program. Sean, uh, I could say the exact same thing. I just love you so deeply and I'm so blessed that I get to know who you are. And I'm really lucky that you came on and you get to share with whoever engages with this, um, this interview today. So thank you, my friend. And uh, we'll do it again. All right. Sounds good, brother. All right. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in this topic and would like to explore it more, you can contact me at jared at jaredandersoncoaching.com, spelled J-A-R-E-D and Anderson with an O. You can also check me out at jaredandersoncoaching.com, where you can book a free discovery session and see what coaching might do for you. I also welcome feedback, so don't hesitate to send me an email with your thoughts on the podcast. And finally, I would invite you to rate and review this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening.